um, in just a moment, but I thought it might be a good opportunity, and she is totally unprepared for this, because I didn't yes. tell her to do this. <laughs> might be a good opportunity for us to get to know her a little bit. Um, Ellison Albans for coming up to two years. Yeah. So many of you will know her, but she goes to our 6 p.m. service, so many of you might not know her so well. So, Ellen, mm. what have you been doing for the past year? What, what it's been a crazy year <laughs> for everyone. Um, yeah, this year we, my husband James is here. Uh, we started off the year um, living at SNBC at Croydon. Um, I was studying full-time. Um, and when COVID hit in about April, we moved, we were living there, we moved out to Riverston, um, out near Rouse Hill. We have family out there and, um, yeah, the time was, I think God was just, telling us now's the time to move back. Um, so we moved back out there. Um, I kept doing college. Um, and I've, uh, this last half of the year, um, I've been doing college part-time and I've just started doing a master's of teaching, um, looking at doing some high school teaching um, with a history, legal studies, society and culture focus. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, God's, God's been growing me heaps this year. And um, I think this really has shown me at college the value of um, just how much God uses your work secular kind of everyday work um, and so yeah I think he's been drawing me to um, yeah, working with high school kids um, and yeah I'm really passionate about history I think it's really important and shows a lot about who God is and um, yeah it's really helpful for people I think mm -hmm. so yeah that's what I've been doing so you've been at SNBC which is yeah. Sydney Missionary and Bible College for a couple of years now yeah and and what's what's one thing of many, I presume, mm. that God has shown you about himself mm. during this time? Mm. Um, God is a lot bigger than I think I gave him credit for. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that I don't understand about God. Um, but college has been teaching me that that's okay. Um, that there are things I can really know for sure about God um, and those things help me understand that actually he's big and he's more in control than I can ever be. So I think, yeah, God's just been giving me a whole lot of peace through college and convicting him of his re reality in terms of he's real and he's real in my life and he's real through the, um, through the scriptures. Um, but also just, yeah, it's convicting me of it's okay to just sit and be with him and trust him. Um, That's really fun, but it's a bit daunting not having anything in front of me, so <laughs> I might go here. Um, cool. It's great to be here with you. Uh, it's nice to see all your faces. I'm going to pray as we start. Father, convict us from your word today of the value of a life spent worshipping you. In Jesus' name, amen. This here is a really old photo. It's from 1896. I think, you think about that, that's a long time ago. I think it's a really beautiful photo, actually. And it's of three athletes who are training to run the marathon road in the Olympics. It was taken by uh, an American traveler photographer called Burton Holmes. And a few years after this, he went to Athens to watch the Olympics in person and to write about it. Uh, and it turns out that the marathon road, one these guys were training for, was the event to watch. He wrote in his book, the fifth day is the day of the great race from Marathon. On this event, the Greeks founded all their hopes, saying if we but win the prize for Marathon, we shall forget all our defeats. The runners would start in Marathon, 40 kilometers away from the Athenian stadium, and the first one to reach there would be the winner. 
And so after watching the event, Burton wrote, Greeks and, bar and barbarians are running with grim determination. They know that he who wins the race for marathon will have the story of his victory recited to admiring generations long after the other contestants have passed into oblivion. The spectators are all a-tremble with excitement. They remain on tiptoe as if eager for the first glimpse of the runners who are still 18 miles away. They get news that the Frenchman is leading. All eyes gazing westward when at last a cannon shot is heard. It means that the first runner has reached the outer boulevards, that in a moment he will be here. Who he is, no one can tell until the crowd outside thunders its joy on the great road. It is a Greek. It is a Greek. <laughs> And a young Greek peasant, all dust and perspiration, staggers into the stadium where 100,000 people, maybe some poetic license, acclaim him as the hero of the hour. Fast forward 100 years, and I think our fascination with long distance running, it's maybe only dulled a little. Because running a marathon, or even a half marathon, it's something we celebrate. And it's a huge achievement because we know it takes grit. It takes grit to overcome all the physical and mental obstacles that come with a marathon and to persevere right to the end of such a hard race. For me, uh, the point of giving up in a run is usually at about the first kilometre mark, sadly. Um, but I have other things that I'm keen to finish, to reach the finish line with in my life. I'm keen to finish my, my uni degrees, even though uh, assignments can sometimes get quite frustrating. I'm keen to keep running the race of my marriage with James even if things get tough. We all have things in our life that we value enough that we want to reach, uh, reach the end. We want to persevere with them, even if they get hard. And as Christians here this morning, one of those things, it's our faith. We want to stay the course as followers of Jesus. So how can we persevere with our faith? How can we run with perseverance the race that Jesus has marked out for us? Well, my long-distance runner friends, not me, uh, tell me that to persevere in a long-distance run, you need a healthy heart, a healthy mental game, and healthy muscles. Hopefully that's, if any of your long-distance runners, that sounds all right. I think in the same way, in a way, the same is true with our faith. Today we're going to see through Psalm 122 that worship equips us to persevere with God for the long haul. It grows in us a healthy heart, a healthy mental game, and healthy muscles. And so this morning, we're going to just go through this psalm line by line, kind of devotional style. So have your pocket psalm handy, and we'll see what it has to say to us about persevering with Jesus. Okay, let's start at verse 1. What does this psalm say about worship and the heart? Verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Glimpse your eyes down to verse 9. You see the house of the Lord is in that psalm as well. It bookends this psalm. It's all about God's house. And the Old Testament, all the way back from Genesis, it makes clear that a house anywhere on earth can't actually contain the God of the heavens and the earth. That's impossible. But this place, the house of God, it's where God chooses to meet with his people. And so the worship we see in this song, this psalm, has at its core God's presence with his people. And we get a glimpse of this pilgrim's emotional response to being in God's presence there in verse 1 in those first three words. I was glad. Another translation says, my heart leaped for joy. 
this gladness, it's not just a, I'm feeling pretty happy kind of gladness. No, it's a deep, rich sense of joy in getting to be in God's presence. Verse 2. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so here we get the context for that joy that was in verse 1. Uh, God's people, they finally reached Jerusalem. We've been following them over the last couple of weeks as they've been ascending the steps. And here they have finally come to the place where they can enjoy God's presence with them. Where they remember, where they celebrate who he is and who they are. And they get to be in that space. Being there fills this pilgrim with joy. Does getting to worship God fill you with joy? For me, in the context of worshiping God at church, I think I find myself, I often just come not really thinking about why I'm coming, uh, but I think just because it's what I do on a Sunday. And it's not a bad thing, I think, to be in a routine of spending time with God. That's a good thing. But if we just keep worshiping God, just doing the rhythms of God worship, just because it's what we do, without that intentional heart commitment, we're putting ourselves in danger of letting that worship slip as our routines change. You see, if our heart isn't focused on our God as we're spending time worshipping him, other things will quickly take priority. So we don't see in this um, that as he reaches Jerusalem, this pilgrim's focus is on whether his mate Jerry, who he had an argument with last time they were up at Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles, whether he's here. His focus isn't on how much better he could have organised that trip up the steps than that other guy. He just seems to be genuinely loving getting to spend time worshipping God. What a great little testimony. When we're motivated by love for God, worship equips us to persevere for the long haul with Jesus by growing a healthy heart within us. But healthy heart on its own, it doesn't get our feet one in front of the other. We also need a healthy mental game. Not a mental game that listens to lies that whisper, give up, give up, but a mental game that clings to truth. And so the worship we get in uh, verses 3 to 5, it points us to three core truths about God that we need to cling on to if we're going to have a strong mental game. The first is that God is always our refuge. This is a model of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Some of you might have uh, been to the Middle East and seen models like this. But I put this here for us this morning because in this middle section, verses 3 to 5, the pilgrim really focuses us in on the physicalness, the physicality of the city. When Gareth read before, did you, uh, did you notice that verse 3, it seemed a little bit out of place there? Because at first read, it doesn't really seem to be saying anything about God. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. Kind of reads a bit, maybe more like an engineer signing off on a recent building project. Tick, it's, it's built, built well. But the psalmist thinks that this verse is worth using up his precious scroll for us. It's worth something. And what he seems to be communicating to us is that the way the stones fit together in this city reflects something about the character of God. See, the people inside a well-built city, they have refuge from the dangers outside its walls. And it's just like this for those of us who sit in the protection of God's walls. In God is perfect refuge 
and security. But the city reminds the pilgrim of another deep truth about God. He deeply cares about our relationships with each other and with him. Verse 4. To it, to Jerusalem, the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. You see, Jerusalem, it's more than just a fortified city. It manages to do something that seems impossible for a lot of the Old Testament. It manages to unite the 12 tribes of Israel as a single people in harmony with each other and with their God. The tribes have struggled to be united even at the best of times in the Old Testament. But here, ascending the steps and worshipping Yahweh at these three annual festivals, God's people, they are one. And here this morning, we all come from different places. We come with different interests and different strengths. We're different ages. We have different heart languages, different backgrounds, different personalities. But as we come here to worship God, we are gathered into a single whole. Our differences, they pale into insignificance as we hum, as we confess, as we sit under God's word together, as we pray week by week. God builds relational unity in the act of worship. But God is also building relational unity between us and him, not just between each other, us and him as well as we worship. The message paraphrases that last bit of verse 4 like this. To give thanks to the name of God, this is what it means to be Israel. When we worship God, we're not only equipping ourselves for the long haul with Jesus, we're actually doing the very thing we're made to do. Augustine wrote a long time ago, a Christian should be a hallelujah from head to foot. When we praise God, corporately and privately, we're getting in touch with the core reality of who we are, with our core identity. And so the pilgrim gives thanks to God at the end there in verse 4, but he gives us the reason in verse 5. For there the thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Core truth number three, God is always just, God is always good. That word for judgment there in verse 5, it's a great one. In Hebrew, it's mishpat, mishpat. And it's got this sense of putting things right, of straightening things out so that they're as they should be. When we take our time focused on God in worship, we're reminded of the absolute truth that God is good, that he's just, and that he is the source of mishpat, of straightening things out, of rightness. He is working things out for good even when we can't see it. And as pilgrims on this journey, these truths, they help us persevere. God is our refuge. He deeply cares about our relationship with him and with others. And he is always pursuing justice and goodness. And so when we remind ourselves of these things in worship, we're reminded actually of their importance in our lives. You see, when these truths become the loudest voice in our mental game, we won't be derailed by doubts. But instead, we can persevere for the long haul, knowing what is always true. So we've looked at the heart, we've looked at the head, the mind, but even the most healthy heart and the best mental game, 
won't get your feet one, front, one in front of the other. I sprained my ankle uh, pretty badly three weeks before James and my wedding. Uh, it was pretty sad. And I had, uh, had me hobbling all the way up until our wedding day, over our wedding day into our honeymoon. Anyway, um, no matter how good my mental game was, no matter how much I wanted to walk properly down that aisle, and no matter how good my mental game was, my muscles were out of whack. I wasn't walking normally that day. And there's certainly no way that I would have been able to do a long distance run. We need healthy muscles to persevere for the long haul with Jesus. Not necessarily physical muscles, but healthy everyday lives that live their purpose of furthering God's mission in the world. As we've been looking at the psalm, your pocket psalm, you might have noticed that verses 1 to 5, they've kind of had a corporate focus, a group focus. But our last section here, it's a little different. Verses 6 to 9, we get a snapshot of how this corporate worship overflows into the everyday life of this pilgrim. Verse 6 9, have a look with me. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my, friend, my relatives and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here in this section, uh, we've got what one scholar has said is perhaps the most obvious use of alliteration. Alliteration, you've got words with starting with the same letter. The most obvious use of alliteration in the whole of the Hebrew poetry in the Bible. The pilgrim prays for peace and prosperity there in verse 6, and peace and security in verse 7. We're going to do a little bit of Hebrew, so strap in. They're the words shalom. Have you heard of that before? Not if you've heard of that before. Great. Shalom. Probably not heard of this one. Shalva. More. Anyway, <laughs> okay. First one is shalom. Shalom. Do you go right to left with Hebrew? So, yep, that's good for you to know. Uh, shalom. It's one of the richest words in the whole Bible. Someone said to me once that uh, having a dictionary definition for shalom helps us understand it just as much as having someone's phone number helps us understand them. Shalom. It gathers up all these aspects of wholeness. Everything that comes with God's will being complete being present. It encapsulates completeness, welfare, peace, physical prosperity, physical safety, sorry, health, tranquility, contentment. When we see Jesus' healings in the Gospels, that is shalom in action. Our second word is shalva, shalva, which is translated as prosperity there in verse 6 and then security in verse 7. But it's got nothing to do with large bank accounts. Its root meaning is leisure. Shalva is the relaxed stance of a person who knows that everything's okay because God is over us, God is with us, and God is for us. So we can breathe. That's shalva. But I think the really cool thing about the use of shalom and shalva here is that they're used to play on the very name that's come up again and again throughout this psalm. Jerusalem, or in Hebrew, Yerushalayim. Literally, the city of peace. Put them up here. This is how it um, shows in the Hebrew text. Like the, the words are right next to each other there. Uh, can you see some similarity there? Like It's hard with the Hebrew, but I tried to put it in the bottom bit as well. The shal, shal, shal. That's repeated there. But what's the point of this repetition? There's got to be a point, right? 
I think we're meant to be left with a deep sense of the connection between God's presence, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and Shalom and Shalva. They're deeply connected. Only in God's presence are our deepest longings for wholeness, for Shalom, and for leisurely peace, contentment, Shalva. Only in God's presence are they perfectly fulfilled. And he actually is fulfilling his purposes of shalom and shalva in and through us. By doing this, God is using us to further his mission in the world. By Jesus giving of his spirit to us, we carry the presence of God around in us. And so when we live our everyday lives for him, God uses us to fulfill his purposes for the world. Have a look at the pilgrim's prayers there in verses 6 and 7. We see it there a little bit. In verse 6, he asks for shalom and shalva for God's, for God's people. In verse 7, he prays for unity within God's people. But not only does he pray for these things, in verse 8, we see God uses the pilgrim's public words to declare the shalom that's found in his presence. And in verse 9, the pilgrim commits to doing his everyday life farming the field and caring for his family in pursuit of God's good. The pilgrim's corporate worship, it's overflowed into his everyday life, giving it purpose as he pursues God's God's purposes of shalom. And when we frame, with this pilgrim, the ordinary things of our lives, our Monday to Friday, our family interactions, our leisure, with God's goals of shalom, for the whole world, these everyday things become infused with divine purpose, with dignity. Do you see your Monday to Friday as having divine purpose? Do you invite God into your everyday ordinary movements, inviting him to fulfill his purposes through you? Because you have a purpose. And as a carrier of God's presence, Your Monday to Friday, it has divine dignity. And God wants to use your everyday to bring completeness, bring wholeness to his world. And when we let, what we do here, when we let corporate worship overflow to our hands and to our feet, into our bones and our muscles, God infuses our everyday with his presence and with his purposes for the world. So as we worship God corporately, as we worship him individually, our eyes become fixed on his presence with us. On Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He offers us healthy hearts focused on God, motivated by a love for him in worship that helps us persevere. He offers us healthy minds, as in worship we're reminded that God is always our refuge, that he deeply cares about relationship and that he's always pursuing justice and goodness, even when we can't see it. And he offers us healthy muscles as our worship overflows into our everyday lives, infusing our every movement with divine purpose and with dignity. So to finish up this morning, I'm going to read Psalm 122 one more time, and then I'm going to pray. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet
feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there the thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the shalom of Yerushalayim. May they shalvah who love you, shalom be within your walls and shalvah within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, shalom be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Father God, give us hearts that are motivated by love for you as we worship you here at church and as we worship you individually. Give us minds that are convicted of what is real, even when doubt creeps in. Give us muscles that work to seek your good in the world. And Father, by your spirit, help us to run the race marked out for us, setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, on Emmanuel, God present with us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.